Let's uh, stand and let's uh, uh, read together First uh, Samuel chapter 18, beginning at verse 6. First Samuel chapter 18, beginning at verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from stri- striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens, ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this, this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of thousands, of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Mirab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight for the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I? Who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Meholathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, Let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private, and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought the foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. 
Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being under your word, for the ways in which you fashion and shape us through your word that maybe we don't expect. We ask today, Lord, that you would continue to do that as we spend our time working through this passage of Scripture, Lord, that this would be um, your word for us today, and that you would allow me as your messenger to simply reflect your truth in such a way, Lord, that it would be accurate, and Lord, that your, um, your desire to work in us and to shape us and to mold us, Lord, would be accomplished because we're willing to be humble, and willing to be teachable, and desiring to glorify you. So Lord, we ask for your strength and for you to be glorified in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Today, of course, is uh, Palm Sunday, the day Jerusalem welcomed Jesus uh, and celebrated the entrance of the King of the Jews into Jerusalem with great celebration. They were singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But only a week later, they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And today, as we look into our text in 1 Samuel 18, we're reminded that it wasn't long ago that the narrator told us that as a result of David's musical skill on the lyre, or that small harp, that Saul loved David and made him his armor bearer, but now... After David defeats Goliath, the Philistine champion, and acts as such as Israel's deliverer, Saul is seeking to take David's life. So there's, there's a similarity going on here. It's just to think about what today is celebrating, the triumphal entry, and how just a short while later, the people are turned against Jesus. So Saul loved David, but now after this great deliverance of Israel, he is seeking to take his life. How, how do these things happen? How do we go from, you know, loving or celebrating to wanting to say crucify him or kill him? How is it that people can respond so differently? And the answer is that uh, it's an issue of the heart. There's something that lies in the heart, where there are longings and motives that are residing in the heart. The people of Jerusalem rejected Jesus because he was not the king that they were looking for. They were looking for a political deliverer, right? One that would overthrow the bondage of Rome and, and restore Israel to this wonderful place of, of, of order and celebration before God. But it was a political king they were looking for. And isn't it interesting that in Saul's day, Saul was the king of the people. He's the one that they wanted. And so Saul ultimately rejects David because of his own sinful pride, because David was becoming the, uh, the, the people's favorite. The king, God, was looking to raise is not Saul, but it is David. In fact, Saul had been told by God, you know what? Your days are numbered. I am raising up another that is better than you from one of your neighbors. So we have this, these, these two different attitudes that are taking place. And in Saul, we're going to see it full-blown 
in this chapter and actually ongoing as we continue through 1 Samuel. But in both accounts, there is ultimately a rejection of God, and in particular, a rejection of God's chosen king. The people in shouting, crucify him, crucifying, were saying, we reject the king that you have chosen. And Saul, ultimately, in seeking to kill David, is saying, I reject God, the king that you have chosen. So our, our text begins at verse 6, where both Saul and David are returning home with the rest of the army. The Philistines have been struck down. Let's just read verse 6 again. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. So the Philistines have been struck down from the gates of Ekron and Gath to the city of uh, Sheruhan by the uh, armies of Israel and, of course, King Saul. That's quite a spread if you look on a map. The whole kind of southwestern side of what we now understand to be Israel, that whole area was the, the means by which or the place of that routing of the Philistines. And so now they're returning to the sounds of celebration. And it was typical to have this great celebration of a victorious king. Now we know a little bit about what that's like here because for a couple of years, the Giants have won uh, the world championship, all right? And uh, there have been great celebrations in the city. I know some of you hate that, right? But you know what it's like. It's a big parade and everything shuts down and there's, there's, you know, there's confetti and there's people marching and all this kind of stuff. And Just imagine, though, in this time when a conquering king came back into his territory, there was a lot of pomp and circumstance. There was a lot of things that were happening. And typically what would happen is the women would lead that entourage and they would sing and they would dance and they would play their tambourines. It was a time of great celebration. So that's the kind of thing that was going on. It was a great gathering of all the inhabitants of the cities. It was a great celebration, a truly wonderful day to remember. It was a great victory over a persistent and troubling enemy. But another conflict was in the works. Another battle was about to commence. and would be a battle of madness on the part of Saul the king that seeks to eliminate the hero of the recent conflict. Of course, that's David who defeated Goliath. Now, there are three words that flow out of this passage that I think are helpful for us at least to highlight as we begin here. The first word I want you to pay attention to is the word raved in verse 10. This word raved is typically translated prophesied. Now, if you remember the first time the Spirit of God rushed on Saul, he prophesied like these other prophets. He joined in and people observed that. There was something happening with him, okay? But now, Saul is not under the influence, you might want to say, of the Spirit of God, but he's under the influence of a harmful spirit from God. This is not a demon. This is a spirit from God that is now bringing harm to Saul, and that influence is being fleshed out now, not in prophecy, but in this rave, this madness, okay? That's the first thing. So this is part of what's going on with Saul. Secondly, I want you to notice um, the verse right before that, verse 9, the word eyed. The word is also translated in many cases with the idea of blaming. So when it says that Saul eyed David, it wasn't just, oh, I have an eye on you, but I am blaming you. 
I'm blaming you for all that I'm hearing. I'm blaming you for all the things that are being said right now. And because of that, I'm after you. So it's packed with far more meaning than just saying I have my eye on you. The last one is uh, the word enemy, which is found toward the end of our text here. And this is how this episode ultimately ends. Saul is entrenched in the idea that he is David's enemy. Now just putting all this together, we can see that this passage is all about what I'm calling madness and Saul's secret mission to remove David. Madness and Saul's secret mission to remove David. You're just going to see that unfolding in this passage. Saul is twisted in his mind, twisted in his passions, and has his bent, this desire to get rid of David. And there are three main characters then in this story that I think are worth giving attention to. And I think also kind of give some symbolic representation. There is, first of all, of course, there's Saul. And Saul, for us, is an Ichabod figure. Remember Ichabod in the story of 1 Samuel? The glory has departed. And if you remember, what is it that happened to Saul? Well, the Spirit of God rushed on Saul, but now the Spirit of God has left Saul, and that Spirit of God is now on David. And Saul is left to fend for himself, so to speak. And what we have here is a person, a man, reduced to being uh, simply to, to, to function with his own strength, with his own sinful inclinations. And that's what happens, friends, when we quench the Spirit. That's what happens when we are calloused to his ministry in our life. We become very, very much like Saul. Secondly, there's David, of course, that is the Emmanuel figure, God with us teaching us what happens when the Spirit of God rests on a chosen servant of God. His submission, we'll see here, his humility, his dependence on God for success. And then, of course, ultimately, there is a, there's a player in the story that's always there, and that is God, who is sovereignly working his purposes in the background, accomplishing his providential plan. All right, so this is just kind of setting the stage for this story. Here is this Here's this raving man, king, who is the now enemy of David. And he has his eye on him, but his eye is an eye of jealousy focused at this man, David. And we're going to see this story now unfold in this text. So let's begin by looking at what I'm calling Saul's fearful jealousy. So the great battle with Goliath has taken place. After 40 days of taunting God, God himself sends a young shepherd boy into the midst of the context where the battle is taking place and ultimately, for the honor of God's name, goes and takes on that giant. And he says, the battle is the Lord's. This is for the Lord. And, and there's this great victory, of course, with David. David is successful. And just remind ourselves here, David is not successful because of his power, his strength, or his skill, but it was because of the Lord. 
And as a result of the Philistine army, uh, they flee, and in chaos, the army of Israel chases them down and routs them. Now they're on their way back, and the celebration now begins. The women join this procession, and we find them singing now in verse 7. So here is the song in this section here. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Now I want you to notice, first of all, the content of this song. And if you are a student of ancient Hebrew poetry, which you probably are not, I'm not either, so I had to do some research, you will understand that their song was actually typical and poetic. It was not intended to minimize the effectiveness of anyone, but rather to celebrate their great accomplishment. In other words, it was intended to honor both David and Saul. Now in poetry, the practice is often to go from the lesser to the greater. And that's why you have you know, 10,000 to 10,000, okay? Or tens of thousands. You have a, his thousands to 10,000, right? As well as the subject being the same in both in, in, in both couplets. So, in other words, you could read the content in the following way. Saul and David have struck down their thousands and tens of thousands. So, in, in poetry, you, you build. That's, that's the way they do poetry. But, but Saul doesn't hear it that way. What they're singing here is to honor both David and to honor Saul. But Saul is already jaded He's already rejected by God. And so he now hears this, and he is in, intimidated by what he hears. He's offended by what he hears. But notice what is missing in this song, which helps us understand a little bit about still the spiritual content or, and the spiritual attitude of the people at that point in time. What the stanza should, uh, should have at the end here is this. Not only Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands, it should finish with something like, and praise be to the God of Israel. There's no mention of God here. There's no mention of God about being the means by which the success in battle has been accomplished. Now friends, that, that might be arguing from silence, but listen to what Miriam sings uh, right after Israel crosses over the Red Sea, having been chased down by the Egyptian army. Exodus 15, 21 says, And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider, he has thrown them into the sea. Now what's missing in her song is this. Praise for Moses. What did Moses do? He took his staff and he put it in the water. Woo, right? There's no praise for Moses. There doesn't need to be praise for Moses. This was God at work. But when people are removed from God, when they're not interacting with God, when they're not thinking about God, they do not attribute to God the things that he is at work doing in the affairs of those people. So there's an absence going on here that I think is, is, is pretty stunning. And so in the same way, the women sing... Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And they're giving praise and glory to 
the military might of Israel and not to God, who was the real force in that day. And friends, there's a lesson for us all here. We need to be sure that we are giving praise and glory to God for his faithfulness in our lives. We want to we avoid, in the context of our church, we want to avoid things like a celebrity pastor. And I know I, I'm not even anywhere near that, okay? But I'm just saying, there's, so often we, we, we give accolades to people who are faithful pastors in such a way that those accolades are far more about them than they are about the glory of God. And we also want to be careful that we're not thinking about a church as being some kind of a celebrity church. In other words, look what our pastor did. He's such a great man, a great communicator, a great voice in the community. Or look at, look at what our church did. XYZ is a church uh, that is awesome because of all the things that they're doing in the community. And ultimately what people are saying when they make statements like that is, look at us, aren't we great? Look at me, I'm a wonderful person because I'm a part of a wonderful church. Now I want to clarify something here. There's a huge difference between giving thanks and giving glory. Giving thanks for God's faithful servants and for faithful church is appropriate. Giving glory or praise is reserved as something only attributed to God. So making that distinction is important. We can give thanks for people. And there's a lot of people that are part of this church that I give thanks for. But we ultimately give glory to God. We attribute the strength and the power and the means behind all that is accomplished to him. And then we are humbly thankful for any little part that he has allowed us to play in the process. But when we get our eyes off of God, we have a tendency to look at people. We have a tendency to look at, might want to say, the church rather than him. Now, that's, that's the song. Now, let's think about uh, what I'm calling the anger. How did Saul respond to the woman's repeated song? Verse 8, and Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David 10,000, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more could he have but the kingdom? I mean, the next thing is that they want him to be king. Interesting. It's always interesting when the characters in Scripture who don't know God's providence are actually speaking God's providence in preparation for what God is doing. Now, clearly, Saul did take that song personally and felt slighted by the comparison between he and David. However, if anything, just think about this. Saul should be thankful for David bailing him out of a very, very awkward and embarrassing situation. I mean, 40 days is a long time. We talked about that during that, right? 40, I mean, after 10 days is a long time. After 30 days is a long time. When your soldiers are looking at you as the king, as the deliverer, the one that we want to go out into battle for us, and you're not doing it, and along comes David. He should be thankful. And you know what? This should be an opportunity for him to actually look to God and repent of his unwillingness to trust God. But he doesn't do that. Instead, what does Saul do? He gets angry. He is not pleased. Now, one can only wonder if Saul is tormented by the words of God spoken through the prophet of Samuel. I mentioned it earlier, but 1 Samuel 15, 28 says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, speaking to Saul, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. 
But friends, this is an anger that is mixed with fear. If you notice in the text how that, that word fear seems to run through this passage. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul is feeling threatened by David's success. And a fearful jealousy has set in and was beginning uh, to, to now be the, the means by which he was going to do something. So this, this fearful jealousy now is what, uh, what we see now in Saul as he turns to David. So notice now verse 9, this is the jealousy. And Saul eyed David from that day on. Now remember, on a previous occasion, Jonathan had won a great victory for Israel, but it was Saul who got the credit. Remember that? And on this occasion, it is David who won the the victory, but Saul is not getting the credit, at least in his thinking. The people are celebrating Saul and David, but he is now taking it personally, and he's thinking, no, 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 there's something that's happening here. This is not good. And so David responds, um, Say, and Saul responds in fearful jealousy toward David, and it's a jealousy now that fuels his actions toward David. Now, I, as I was thinking about this whole concept of, of, of jealousy, I was reminded of a movie I saw years ago. You may have seen it, I don't know, but it's the, it's the movie Amadeus. And it's the story of um, a composer um, by the name of Saleri who basically made a covenant with God by saying this, if I am a good man, will you allow me to become an extraordinary composer? So I'm going to do my best to honor you, to to glorify you, but allow me then to have this wonderful gift of, of being an extraordinary composer. But then he meets young Mozart. And Mozart is just like oozing with skill and gifts. In fact, he takes Soleri's composition and he just improves on it in such a way that it's magnificent. And Soleri is listening to it and he sees it and he is amazed at the incredible giftedness of Amadeus Mozart. And yet, Soleri is trying to walk with God in his thinking and Mozart is a selfish, promiscuous, living life to its fullest, avant-garde character who happens also to be very, very gifted. And so Soleri's heart begins to turn. God, why are you abandoning me? Why would you give him these gifts? And this jealousy begins to settle into his heart. And so anytime he has an opportunity, he begins to speak badly about Mozart. And it ultimately ends up with his own personal Ruin. Jealousy, friends, can grab us and can turn us and can destroy us. And oftentimes, we find things to be jealous about that are really part of God's providence. So the bitterness of jealousy is a snare that every follower of Christ should root out and destroy. Left to itself, it will only lead to harm and personal ruin. Jerry Bridges offers three words of counsel regarding jealousy. Let me just throw them at you just to help you ponder this. Number one, turning to the sovereignty of God. Turn to the sovereignty of God is what he says to begin with. He's saying we're all created by God with differing talents, abilities, and spiritual gifts. 
There will always be a younger person who will be able to, to, to come up um, the ranks, so to speak, who will have far greater talents than you. Just be ready for it. It's okay to reproduce yourself and that person that you've invested in to rise above where you are. That's all part of God's sovereignty. Secondly, we must remember that all of us who are believers are one body in Christ and individually members of another. In other words, we are all gifted in different ways, all so that we can be the body of Christ together. And so we are to celebrate and to honor and to rejoice over other people's elevation, over their, I want to say, successes, over the ways in which they are used, and not be so consumed about the difference and disparity between where we are and where we perceive them to be. And finally, he says, we are to uh, recognize that our jealousy robs us of emotional energy and causes us to lose sight of what God is at work doing in our lives. In other words, if we're jealous, we're using all this energy in our jealousy, and it's not focused at, God, what do you want to do through my life to bring glory to your name? Now, just some things to think about that I think are helpful here. And, and just thinking about Saul, he didn't have to get jealous here. He could have been thankful. And he could have rejoiced. And he could have gone with the ladies and said, you know what? Yeah, I went out there. I fought. I'm the king. Yes, I am. That's fine. No problem. But, you know, David is the one who won the victory over Goliath. Let's give him the accolades here. But he wouldn't do that. And part of the reason he wouldn't do that is because of what was going on in his heart, having had the Spirit of God leave him, left to his own self. It's only sin that's going to come out. So we move now from this fearful jealousy, sorry, to Saul's thoughtful strategy, his thoughtful strategy. Now that sounds like a positive thing, doesn't it? Uh, but I'm not meaning it in a positive way. In fact, you'll notice that the word, um, or the words Saul thought, are going to shape the strategies that Saul would use. In verse 11, Saul thought, I will pin David to the wall. In verse 17, Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. In verse 21, he, Saul thought, let me give her to him, talking about his daughter, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistine may be against him. And then in verse 25, and Saul thought to make David fail by the hand of the Philistines. These are all his thoughts. This is what's going on in his heart. This is what now his jealousy has fueled. A thinking that is, has his eye on David, but it's an eye to get rid of him. So let's let this, this, this key and these, these, these ideas of his thoughts then kind of give us direction uh, to see his three strategies that unfold in this passage. Strategy number one, I will pin David with a weapon. I will pin David with a weapon. The next day, verse 10, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre and he did, uh, as he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. Now, not only is David gifted with his fingers, but he's nimble on his feet, apparently. 
twice evading the spear thrown by the king. But now, rather than Saul being soothed by David's lyre playing, he's enraged, he's maddened, and he seeks to pin David to the wall. So much passion, so much hatred, so much jealousy now. And friends, there's some significant symbolism here that, that we see, even in just this little, this little exchange, this little, uh, this little event that took place here. And it's this ongoing comparison between Saul and David. In David's hand, we see the lyre or the harp that's an instrument of healing. In Saul's hand, we see a spear, which of course is the instrument of death. And this comparison reveals for us David's faithful service versus Saul's murderous designs. Now, if Saul was successful in pinning David to the wall, he would rid himself once and for all of this upstart usurper to his throne, at least in his mind, that's what he's thinking. But try as he might, David successfully evaded him twice. That's quite a, that's quite a feat, when you think about it. Now, that's the first strategy, and his strategy fails. The second strategy is this. I will please him with a wife. I will please him with a wife. In fact, it was pleasing to Saul that his daughter will find love, David. And in fact, we'll find a little bit later on that David is pleased by this idea that I can marry the wife. So there's this word pleasing here that kind of is at play in this text. David no longer is in a fit of rage, but he's still maddened and fearful of David's rise and comes up with this second strategy. No longer would he personally put his hand to kill David. No, his plan was much more sinister and actually was far more despicable and reveals the depravity of his heart, his hatred of David, and his callous heart toward his daughters. Notice what it says now in verse 17. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Oh, see, he's spiritual. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Fight the Lord's battles, but what I really want is for you to die. William Blakey comments, nothing shows a wickeder heart than being willing to involve another, and especially one's own child, in a lifelong sorrow in order to gratify some feeling of one's own. So Saul is willing to use his daughter, to bring his, his daughter into this whole plot, whether she likes it or not, whether she's going to be harmed or not. I mean, marrying off a daughter was a pretty serious thing. But David's humility is on display as he answers the king. And David said to Saul, verse 18, Who am I and who are my relatives? My father's clan in Israel, that I should be a son-in-law to the king. In other words, I'm unworthy to be elevated to the royal family. My people are of humble beginnings, and there's even non-Jewish blood in my veins, if you remember, Ruth. Boaz. But in response to David's humility, Saul seeks to drive the knife of hatred into his heart. Verse 19, but at the time when Merib 
Saul's daughter, should have been given to David. She was given to Adriel, the Meholathite, for a wife. And just, just kind of put a little check in your mind here. And you want to think ahead because what happens a little later in the story in 2 Samuel chapter 21 is that the five sons of that union are taken as a blood price for Saul's behavior against the Gibeonites, and all five of them, along with two others, are hanged. That's just a little part of the story that happens later, but this is the beginning of it. Saul's own hatred begins this relationship, but it all comes to ruin for him, ultimately, with his descendants. Now that was the first daughter. Now we have the second daughter, uh, Michael, but there is a surprising twist here, isn't there? Something that Saul, in his depravity, pounces on. Verse 20, now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and Saul, you know, he was pleased by it. Verse 21, Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Now, I don't know anything about the character of his daughter, but clearly Saul intended to say, if my daughter is married to David, she will somehow undermine his character and jade his decision-making. Somehow Michael was side with her dad and be a snare to David. Now the phrase, be a snare, is used in many other passages in the Old Testament and typically is used in the context of being entrapped through idolatry. And so it's very possible that Saul's thinking here included two things. That marrying his daughter off to David might cause David to drift toward idolatry because of Michael. And just think of Solomon. And away from walking righteously with God. Secondly, that because of sentimentality, David might be more vulnerable and lack wisdom in his dealings with the Philistines. Now, he's trying to put David in a situation where he is going to be snuffed out. That's the whole point here. This isn't to please his daughter. <laughs> this is to get rid of David. But knowing David's already expressed humility, Saul adjusts his strategy. Let's keep reading here. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servant, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servant spoke those words in the ears of David. But once again, we see the humility of David, don't we? And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I'm a poor man and have no reputation? I mean, what do I have to offer? I don't have, any, I don't have any lands. I don't have any finance. I have nothing to offer here. It just doesn't make any sense. And the servant of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. One thing you can say about Saul, he's pretty clever in his depravity. He had already thought of that. And if David is claiming his unworthiness due to his poor and insignificant family status, then I will have to give David the opportunity to win the right of my daughter with a bride price. This is the kind of thing that chivalry is made of, right? You can have my daughter in marriage if you will go on this quest 
if all the kids would be here, whatever it would be, you know, this, this quest for Shrek or something like that, right? <laughs> to, to, to get the, the princess and to bring her back and maybe take on the, 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 the dragon and cut off the fingers of the dragon as proof, and then you can have my daughter in marriage. It's, it's that kind of thing that we're talking about here. But in Saul's mind, what is he looking for? I'm going to send him out on this quest, which is meaningless, but it's simply a, a test for you, so to speak. No, for Saul, this would be now a means of his death. And notice what it says in verse 25. And Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no, uh, no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Saul's purpose is twofold. twofold. Number one, if the initial encounter um, fails, um, secondly, uh, well he's not, he could be killed by the first encounter, but secondly, if he is successful, then the Philistines are going to be so offended about what happened that they're going to want to come and they're going to they want to come themselves and route David out. So now he's adding to the, the fuel, so to speak, another angle, another way of getting at David. But notice verse 26, and when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. In other words, it was okay. If, if, if this is the way I get there and this is the price I have to pay, then I'm happy to do this. Before the time it expired... David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. So this is twice the price that was asked for. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. And when you read that, you say, wow. And what a shock that must have been for Saul. Saul is convinced. This is my trump card. This is, this is what's going to do it here. You know, David is going to be through. He has played into my plan, and I'm going to be successful. No, you're not. Now, looking back over this section, we can also summarize the third strategy in the following way. We've, we looked, first of all, at pinning David with a weapon, pleasing David with a wife, but now uh, placing David in a war or a war zone, you might even say. So all throughout this, we find that that David is using, or Saul is using these strategies to get David into a place where he is going to be threatened. His life is going to be in danger. Over and over and over, this is what happens. We see that all throughout this text. That Saul is placing David in the context of war with the Philistines. Look at verse 13. So Saul removed him from, the presence, from his presence and made him a commander of thousands. Now that might seem like a positive thing, but remember, he was the leader of many more. This is actually a demotion. And the idea here is that Saul is sending David out to the front lines. All right? and usually the guys in the front lines are the first ones to be killed. And then verse 14, And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. And then in verse 30, we kind of get this, this final summary. Um, and the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul so that his name was highly esteemed. That's just a few. But you, as we read through the story, how many times David is just going out into battle, going out into battle, going out into battle, and each time he comes back successful. So this is all part of Saul's strategy. And so this, this all then results 
because of this fearful jealousy and this thoughtful strategy, it's all results in what I'm calling Saul's continual misery. Not only was Saul angry at the attention David was getting, but the whole story reveals the misery that Saul is in. We see Saul's misery, first of all, because of David's success. This passage begins with the account of David's success. It ends with the account of David's success. And all throughout this passage, we see David's success. Every time that Saul thinks that he has the upper hand, it seems that David comes through unscathed. He's dodging a spear. He's dodging a Philistine. Whatever it might be, he's successful. And it even seems that Saul's persecution of David only brings about greater success for David. You know, David, go out and bring me back a hundred foreskins. He'll never do it. And because of the bride's love, he will be reckless, but he returns with 200, twice the bride price. Or David, go out and fight the Philistines again. And, and the law of averages is on my side, Saul is thinking. Eventually he will fall. But as often as the Philistines came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul. That's a pretty staggering statement. More success. As often as he did it, more success. And for us, this, this, this seems to be a common pattern in God's word and in the history of the church. And we're, we're now going to just kind of take the story and begin to press it and to think about it in terms of where we live and what we're struggling with and how God wants to encourage us here. The more God's enemies resist his will, the more success God's children experience. That doesn't mean that God's servants somehow are um, excused or that God protects them ultimately from any kinds of suffering in their life. David suffered. As the story would go on, we'll find out David suffered at the hands of Saul, and he will continue to suffer. But David's struggle under Saul was training ground for the seriousness of being God's anointed and chosen king of Israel. Now, I just want you to think with me as we walk through Scripture a little bit together. Joseph is, is mistreated by his brothers and sold into slavery. He's mistreated by the wife of his master with a false accusation that sends him to prison. While he's in prison, he, he gives interpretations for dreams, and there are people that are delivered out of prison that promise to remember him, but they forget him. But finally, he rises up into the kingly court of Pharaoh and ultimately is God's instrument of salvation for both Egypt and the people of Israel. Suffering, snuffing out, destroying, but ultimately God is providentially at work through all of this to bring about his own purposes. Think of Israel during the time of Pharaoh at the time of the Exodus. Israel is now under the yoke of slavery, oppressed, beaten, like animals used to build an empire. Yet it is through the oppression of the enemy of God that the people of God are used to reveal the glory of God. I mean, 
the, the story of the, the plagues in Egypt are, are something that not only Christians are aware of, but I mean, it's, it's known around the world. And here's a situation where the people have got in, in such oppression, and yet it's an opportunity for God to reveal his glory and his power in the context of that. So just when you think that the enemy has the upper hand, guess what? God is still working his plan. What about Daniel? Daniel and his friends suffer. They are taken captive, and they're taken to another land. And when they're in that other land, things are done to them that you would not want to have done to you. But they are given a place, ultimately, in a kingly court so that God will be glorified through Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and would turn the heart of that king. Horrible circumstances, God uses it to bring about his providential glory. What about Jesus? He was opposed by many and for a variety of reasons. And this opposition ended with his death on the cross. That was the goal. That was Jerusalem's desire. That's what they were crying out, crucify him crucify him and the religious leadership were celebrating the fact that he is now being crucified on this cross and yet those who were opposed to Jesus God used in his providential redemptive plan as the means by which Jesus would go to a cross and he would suffer and die in our place and so we can passionately and clearly say that rather than the cross being a symbol of the enemy's victory, it became the symbol and instrument of God's divine redemption. So just, just go back to that thought that we're looking at here. The more God's enemies resist his will, the more success God's children experience. That's kind of a big picture statement. It doesn't mean you're not going to suffer. But through your suffering, God is being glorified. He is accomplishing his purposes in this world. Now, moving to the, the arena of the church, think about China and think about how the church in China has grown through suffering, through persecution. And think about a country that has all the comforts in this world. And look how the church in that country has declined and wandered and played around with religion, and played around with Christianity, so that now names Christianity only in some kind of a nominal way, and is offended at people that actually say, thus says the Lord. And of course, I'm talking about our country. Christians in our country have become soft, wimpy. But the church in a place like China has become robust, passionate, and growing. And then what about the church in Palestine? Think, what are you talking about? And from what I understand and the people that I've, I've been talking to through the last couple of years, that during the, the things that are happening in Israel and the West Bank and that kind of stuff, the church, the evangelical church in the West Bank in different places is actually growing in the midst of that m Muslim kind of context in that place of suffering. They are growing. We don't hear about it, but it's happening, friends. 
And friends, this is something that we need to see, that even when it seems like the enemy is so strong, so powerful, so intimidating, even when the enemy desires to rid this world of us, don't think that God's purposes have failed. Nothing can thwart the ongoing providence of God. Nothing. God will accomplish all he has set out to do. And God's plan of redemption works through his chosen instruments. And his chosen instruments will continue. His purposes will stand. And the enemy, in his many forms, may attempt to hinder God in many ways. But we have the confidence that his efforts will only be the means through which his purposes will unfold. Now what about us? Maybe the problem is that we have allowed our American culture to define for us the meaning of success. What does it mean to be successful? In the context even of a church in America, what does it mean to be successful? Does it mean you know, to, to kind of, like, like in our sports culture, you know, we won the game. Is it to have the bigger and better house? Is it, is it to have uh, you know, a longer life and having more stuff? And I just wonder if in reality, if we really did a heart check, if our hearts were open and bare to God's standard, whether we would measure up to his definition of success or whether we would measure up more to the world's definition of success. Or is life about living a life that is pleasing to God? Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the intimidation and the persecution, regardless of the hardship and mockery that we may have to endure because we're children of God. Friends, this is training ground for eternity. And so success is measured by our willingness to be prepared for that eternity. So some questions we need to ask ourselves. Am I truly a follower of Christ who has been born again through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Jesus didn't go to a cross to create a religion. He don't get, didn't go to, to a cross to, to celebrate the building of, of, of structures that many people call churches. He came to ultimately hang on that cross and in hanging on that cross, taking the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders and being that sacrifice once for all, paving the way now for this new relationship that we can have with God, this reconciliation that could only come through a perfect sacrifice. And so now to live successfully is not about stuff that we have, it's about humbling ourselves to God's purposes and using everything that we have, our gifts and talents, our family, our resources, as the means by which he is going to accomplish his purposes through us. And for some of us, that might mean getting rid of our stuff. For some of us, that might mean moving to another place for the sake of ministry. For some of us, that means rethinking what we're doing and why we're doing it. And, and making it sure that it's fitting into the context of what God wants us to be and do. Or another question is this, am I purposely walking with God, seeking to grow day by day, and to be conformed to his image? Am I looking at life through the lens of his word? Friends, these are all important questions to ask because 
It was David's success that caused misery in the life of Saul. And anytime God's people are successful, those that are opposed to God do not like it. What I mean by that is when we celebrate, even though there's persecution, the enemy's like, man, why can't we, why can't we get them angry at us? Or maybe in our context, the problem is we do get angry as opposed to glorify God. We end up not being Christ-like because we're so fashioned and shaped by this world that we think it's just to respond with a sinful anger toward the offenses of the world. Secondly, I want you to notice another reason for his misery. Because of God's presence. Three times in this passage we're told that the Lord was with David. Did you catch that? I mean, it's like a, it's like a ringing bell in the story. It's like, you know, here's the story. And by the way, bong, the Lord was with David. The Lord was with David. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Verse 14, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. Verse 28, but so, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, he was even more afraid of David. So the, the misery of those who oppose the people of God is that we are confident that God is always with us. The Lord was with David, but he's also with us. In the same way that the Roman Empire grew to fear and hold the early Christians in awe, Justin Martin explained, or martyr, I should say, explained the emperor, uh, or to the emperor in his first apology. This is what he said, you can kill, but you cannot hurt us. This is why Saul... The more Saul sought to kill David, the more he feared David because he saw that the Lord was with him. He saw that the Lord was his keeper. The Lord would keep him from all evil. The Lord would keep his life. There are many who wrongfully hate God's people, but we must remember that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's presence, hear this, is both a promise and an anchor to all who trust in Christ. So when Jesus was on this earth, he promised his disciples that, that when he left, he would leave another comforter who would be just like him. And that other comforter is the Holy Spirit. But that word comforter we often think about it in terms of, you know, just coming alongside after some difficulty. But the word comforter there actually has the idea of, of giving strength. It means that he's going to fight for us. So think of it in this term. The idea of comforter is not one who comes to dry our tears after the battle, but of one who comes to give us strength and courage for the battle. He is with us to fight for us. So it's not just God coming along after some difficult persecution. No, he's there in the midst of it. And he's there before it even happens. And he's fighting for us during that whole time. But we also see Saul's misery because of the people's affection. You may have noticed that also as we read this chapter. Some of it's from last week. A lot of it's from this week. Notice what the text reveals about the people's affection for David. Jonathan loves David. Israel and Judah love David. 
Michael loves David. The point is this, that all the people around Saul, his children, and even those in his court, have a growing affection for David. The only person that doesn't have an affection for David is Saul. So there's a haunting silence about any affection directed toward Saul, isn't there? Saul's losing. He's losing the battle, even in the the popularity contest. But what's screaming at us through this text is Saul's growing fear and realization that he was losing the kingdom. At the beginning of this text, verse 8, it says Saul thought that the next step for David was to take his kingdom, and he's afraid. But now, in verse 28, at the end of the story, the evidence before him gives him no other conclusion. He saw and knew that the Lord was with David. And Saul was even more afraid. Even more afraid. Saul is defeated, but he's not done. He's fearful, but he's not finished. He will remain to live another day, but not for the glory of God, only for the glory of self. Let me just briefly leave you with three concluding thoughts. Thought number one, do you have the presence of God living in you? Are you one who has trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Or is that something you're still wrestling with? You know, here at Gateway, it would would crush us in a sense to know that you've been with us for a serious length of time. And yet, you had not humbled yourself before God and that you had not embraced him as your Lord and Savior, that you were not a follower of Christ, you were not a child of God. Friends, that's the first place to begin. Do you have the presence of God living in you? Secondly, do you know the presence of God? It's a glorious thing to have the presence of God, but it's another thing to know the presence of God. And by that, I simply mean, do you contemplate his presence with you day by day? And I'm not talking about subjective feelings, but about objective faith that believes that what God says is true and is actually true. So as you're going throughout the day, you have God's word in your heart and you're preaching the gospel to yourself. You're preaching his word to yourself saying, ah, this is what God wants me to do. You're reminding yourself, you know what? The Lord is with me. The Lord is my strength. You're constantly aware that that he is at work. He is actively present in your life. So maybe when you and your wife are in an argument, are you preaching to yourself, God is here with me, with us, right now, right here. Or maybe when you're sitting in that medical chair waiting for the doctor to come in and to give you the news that your x-ray or your MRI test, what are you preaching to yourself at that point in time? What are you saying in your heart? Maybe you should say this. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let my foot be moved. He who keeps me will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is my keeper. The Lord is my shade on my right hand. The sun shall not strike me by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep me from all evil. He will keep my life. The Lord will keep my going out and my coming in from this time forth 
and forevermore. That's not a promise of life on this earth, but that is a promise of God's protection in eternity. God is the one who's in control of that. So no matter what I'm facing, I can rest in him and know that he is the keeper of my soul. To know the presence of God. And finally this, do you live the presence of God? Do you live your life out of the reality of Christ in you? The hope of glory. Lord, help us today to contemplate the kind of ways in which our hearts can be turned into rage, into jealousy, into envy, into anger, into fear. And how as a result of those things, strategies can can well up in our heart that would be contrary to your purposes. Lord, it is so easy for us to think and act and behave in a similar way to Saul. And there may be people in our mind's eye right now that we're thinking of that that maybe we say we hate. Well, we didn't say that publicly, but in our heart we're saying that we want this world to be rid of them. We want to avoid them. We don't like them. And in our hearts, Lord, there is a seed of sin that is growing and it's being nursed Lord, would you convict us of that? Because, Lord, the result of that is that we are no longer sensitive to you and we're thinking only of what we desire. We're blind then to your purposes. So, Lord, we ask this morning for clarity in this area that you would do a work in our heart to reveal your truth, to reveal those areas where we um, we have wandered into sin And we ask, Lord, for your grace and your strength and for forgiveness and humble hearts to repent of that sin. And then, Lord, we're reminded of the fact that you are always with us. That no matter the circumstance, that your presence is accomplished through the the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And as the Word of God is, is, is fed on in our heart, Lord, your Holy Spirit is at work using that to help us and to nurture us and to direct us. And Lord, also would you help us to consider the fact that there is nothing in this world that will thwart your plans. Oh, there might be some things that are temporary hindrances to what seems to be your unfolding plan, but you are at work and what you do will be accomplished, Lord. So, Lord, help us with confidence to live our lives with our families in this community in such a way that would reflect confidence in these truths. Living for you and not for self. Thinking about your glory rather than the glory of man. Giving you praise because of your kindness and your faithfulness to us. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. If you would please.